Nobody wanted to hire a sass-mouthing, thieving Negro, did they? Eat my In the 1950s, after the enslavement era, and indentured servitude had ended for the most part, white rich Canadian families realized that they didn't have anyone to raise their kids. So what did the Canadian government do to step in and fix this problem? Hi, hello, what is up, and welcome or welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard, the podcast where we discuss true crime and Black Canadian history from a critical, decolonial perspective, but above all else without all the unnecessary propaganda that others love to include, but we hate to listen to. Let's get into this week's episode. So in the 1950s, white women were entering all new sorts of working fields, and they left behind the domestic jobs like cooking, cleaning, taking care of kids, sewing, upkeep of the house, etc. All of those things that they were previously forced to participate in due to patriarchal standards, ideals, and because men were running things. Disgusting. These positions were the lowest paying in the country if they were paid at all and it was literally the least valued job that you could do as a woman so they didn't want to do it so when white men and white women do not want to do a job and patriarchy excludes all others from really doing that job the government was like yeah we'll just get some more black caribbean women because that's where we got them from during the enslavement period for the most part to take care of our homes and children and i oh The government turned to the West Indies and relied very heavily on the countries of Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana, Jamaica, Dominica, St. Lucia, Grenada, Puerto Rico, San Domingo, and Barbados for this new supply of labor. This was seen as a legitimate proposal because Canada was colonized by the British and many Caribbean countries were also colonized by the British, and so they were loyal to the same colonizing force at this point, but not necessarily by choice like Canada. Many of the Caribbean nations' loyalty is by force. But they told the public that this was going to improve trading relations. So basically, the islands hold a lot of natural resources and inherent wealth that the Canadian government wanted to access in order to exploit for their own benefit. Their resources obviously include natural resources, but also their labor supply, both things that Canada continues to exploit to this day. The government framed this exploitation of labor as an amazing opportunity for Black women to come to Canada through an opportunity that they likely would not have been given otherwise. So the West Indian Domestic Scheme, and that's its official name, the fact that even the government called it a scheme is just ew to me. Like, I know that's a legitimate word to use, but to me it just proves that they knew that they were doing some nasty, fraudulent stuff here. But it was officially implemented by the Department of Citizenship and Immigration in 1955. This was one of the few, if only, opportunities for Caribbean women to come to Canada and potentially bring their families as well on a permanent basis. They came to Canada working on the prospect, the potential for citizenship, and a chance at a new Western life. Only after working for a year, they were granted landed immigrant status, putting them officially on the road to citizenship. And only after that, they were able to start bringing over their family members. The Canadian government advertised this as an amazing opportunity, and the Caribbean governments did the same. The Caribbean government actually had posters that were up all over the varying countries stating, remember the West Indies relies on you to do your part towards the success of this scheme. If you fail, you will not only let down yourself, but your country. Oh, Lord. If you make good, you will be a credit to your country and contribute towards the continuation of this scheme. 
This is a lot of pressure to be putting on women to go over and raise somebody else's family. The plan was originally to bring over only a hundred women to work in a few select very wealthy homes. The demand, however, was much higher once word got out about the program, so they had to bring over a lot more. Approximately 3,000 women ended up coming to Canada through the West Indian domestic scheme. They intentionally limited the amount of women who could come from each country, and I think that they did this to ensure that any previous friendships or relationships built up between the women wouldn't cross over when they came. The women who were selected to be a part of the scheme lived in upper-class, upper-middle-class, and middle-class homes and environments. A domestic presence was a sort of status symbol. The higher their wage, the higher status their employer had amongst their peers, and they would like use that to flex on each other. I cannot, ew! This wouldn't necessarily benefit the domestic worker in any way, but it was just to assert that their employers were better than everybody else, like for the employers to assert that to their friend groups, which I thought is stupid, but... It's how things worked, I guess. Ugh, disgusted. I want to make it so expeditiously clear that these women would have lived very comfortable lives had they stayed in their home countries, but it was painted like such an amazing opportunity in a brand new and beautiful land. It was also painted as something that they had to do to serve their country. And it was also very enticing. Like, it was a very enticing offer, I'm not gonna lie. So I do not blame these women at all for signing up and wanting to participate in the scheme. Their governments, like I mentioned before, they framed it as if they were heavily relying on these women, as if signing up was their duty, it was their obligation. They just had to do this. In order for women to be eligible for the program, they had to be between the ages of 18 and 35. They had to have at least an eighth grade education. They had to undergo two weeks of super intense training. I couldn't figure out what this training entails or what exactly made it so intense, but it was just said to be quite intense. The women had to be single or at least appear single. They were not allowed to bring friends or family over with them. They had to come completely alone. They also had no say in where they were going. The women had to be in good health, quote unquote. They had to undergo extremely invasive and intrusive testing for venereal diseases. Sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? Like, what? What? Now, the racism here is loud, okay? It's loud. But this is an age-old Canadian practice. The Canadian government historically has subjected Black people to unnecessarily tough and invasive medical testing to determine their eligibility to enter the country. We actually discussed this in the last Black History episode where we talked about the Black ban on immigration, and we've also discussed this before in the Amber Valley episode. I also don't see how this would be a determination as to whether they were in good health or not. Venereal diseases or STIs or STDs or things of that nature, it very much seems like they were using this as a way to insinuate that some women were dirty, but also, the only reason you would really test for something like this is if you knew that these women were going to be sexually active almost immediately after they got to the country. So that leaves the question of who were they going to be sexually active with, aside from the people in the family who brought them over, the men who were paying their wages. I know I ain't crazy. Applicants who met those requirements were shortlisted and they were interviewed once a year by Canadian immigrant officials who visited the islands. These people, in my opinion, it very much seemed like they were more focused on their looks and their perceived credentials. They didn't care about much else than this, and they didn't really do anything to get these women ready for what their lives would be like once they made the move. 
They were told nothing about the climate, how to navigate getting around, literally nothing at all that was genuinely useful. They were told nothing about the dangerous, unsafe, and overall difficult working conditions, and of course the racism or the varying forms of racial discrimination that they were about to endure. They also did not inform women of scammers who would be looking to take advantage of them. An example of this was a woman named Jean who came from Jamaica through this very program was tricked into something called installment buying. The salesman lied about how much his products were and then told Jean that she could just pay as she wanted whenever she wanted. This sounded great and Jean had never heard of something like this before so she decided to buy a lot of stuff and send it back home for her family. Shortly after, the man sent a summoned letter and it said that if she would not pay him immediately then she would be going to jail. So as soon as we find out who you are, trust you will be dealt with. Period. This was not something she had ever experienced back home and so she was left in quite a dangerous predicament in a place extremely unfamiliar to her without any ability to really make up the pay that she was to give this man. Caribbean women who were allowed to enter were specifically placed in homes by the Canadian government. How they determined who went where is unclear, but they did go through extensive lengths to excessively spread these women out. So in September of 1959, 38 Caribbean women arrived in Canada from Barbados. 20 of them were assigned to families in Montreal, and the rest were spread out amongst Quebec, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. In November of 1959, another 32 arrived from Trinidad. Eight were sent to Montreal, seven were placed in Toronto, seven went to Oakville, to Ottawa, Carlton Place, and to Winnipeg. The span of four months, they brought in the, the maximum amount of women that they could, which was 280. They made sure to put a lot of distance between this woman so they wouldn't pose a threat to white Canadian culture. There's powers in numbers at the end of the day. So if these women are separated by the vastness of Canadian territories, they cannot build up a sense of community, they cannot get together, discuss their varying forms of oppression in their positions, and they cannot organize against their exploitation. In my opinion, the Canadian government had this all planned out from the start. Black Caribbean women were absolutely vital to building up Canada as we know it today. Like, let's be so for real about that. But this does not mean that they were valued in the slightest. So most of the women who came to Canada through the West Indian domestic scheme ended up living in Toronto and Montreal, as that's where a lot of the rich white families were who requested them. These cities already had a considerably larger black population than other parts of the country, so luckily these women were able to form some sense of community. Bam! Caribbean women are smart, you know what I mean? So they realized that things were not going to be as easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl as the government had painted it out to be. But when they got here, they realized that things were much worse than they had even thought. They were forced to work every single day, with many being forced to work 18 hours a day, and they were barely paid for their work. There wasn't a minimum wage for these women, but in the Toronto area, most were paid an average of $82 a month, which was $2.65 a day. They were domestic workers, so most lived in the home that they were working in, or they lived in a place that only rented to them because they were domestic workers. They were subject to extreme racism and hostility in all forms by the general public and the very people they were working for. Everything they did was heavily monitored. When I first heard of this program, it immediately made me think of the movie The Help. 
just in its entirety that's what i thought about that happening in canada and yet we were never taught about this is rarely ever shared the women and their families back home thought this program was going to push them forwards into society and for a lot of them for most of them i'd say all it did was hold them back these women were working such ridiculous hours and being forced to do such strenuous work that there was no real opportunity for them to build up a sense of community the same way that West Indian people tend to do regardless of where they're located. But because the Canadian government intentionally spread them out, and even when they were in the same cities, it was very rare for more than a few, like maybe more than two or three, to be in the same neighborhood or in neighboring communities. They were super isolated, and this understandably would only lead to mental health issues. Some women were able to form strong connections and community with one another, despite the clear attempts to make sure that did not happen. It was extremely rare, I didn't read any incident of this occurring, where domestic workers, more than one domestic worker, were hired by the same family, so they did not live in the same house as other workers either. So the racism that they faced could only make this experience that much more isolating. Melissa Rowe, a woman who came to Canada through this program, said, You do what you need to do in order to support your family, and that's why I was going. That's what all of us who came here we're trying to do is look for a better life for us and our families. An unnamed woman who was a part of this program was interviewed by McLean's Magazine in an article that was published on November 4th of 1961. She was from Jamaica, and in 1959, she was one of 66 women who were selected out of a pool of 1,500 to come over through this scheme. She worked for a family of four. There was a mother and a father and two children. She worked extremely long hours, but they let her choose when she could rest and how often she rested. So she was in one of the nicer homes, I would say. Her workdays began at 7 a.m., in which she became a mother, a maid, and a friend to everyone in the house. She supervised baths, she cooked breakfasts at this time, she would hear all of the children's stories, complaints about their dreams, about their day ahead, and give her advice to them as well. It's giving Abilene from the help. Her relationship with the adults was fairly formal. She rarely, if ever, spoke with the husband. Everything that he had to say was told to the wife, and then the wife communicated it to her. She was to do everything but clean the windows. This was odd to me because there was no reason or justification as to why she wasn't to clean the windows. But I think it's likely just because the family didn't want her to be seen, really, because what other reason could it be? Like, why would she be responsible for cleaning everything in the house but this? Once the evening hit, she would meet up with the kids again. She would feed everybody. And while she tends to the kids who were eating dinner in the kitchen, she would also tend to the parents who were eating dinner in the dining room. When everyone's done, she cleans up. And then usually at around 8 p.m., she would head up to her apartment. She was earning $145 a month, which was about $4.75 a day. She had only received a raise one time, and it was for $10 a month. It came after a brief scuffle with the wife of the family. The wife made a very vague and broad promise about a raise, but never took initiative to implement it. When the woman reminded her about the raise, the wife replied with, You probably don't know that Sonic top class servants don't ever get that much. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. This statement was a big no, no. Like, if you know anything at all about Caribbean women, we don't take kindly to disrespect, especially when that disrespect is right in our faces about their work 
and this woman obviously took a lot of pride in her work like she's literally raising your children so she asked the wife like what do you mean top class please answer me this question are you satisfied with my work or not the wife kind of like cowered and she was like yeah you work quite well and the woman said then don't ever talk about top class to me again oh and that's on period the raise was granted and the conversation was never brought up again nor was anything mentioned about her work ethic or anything else along those lines, so the wife learned her lesson that day. When the McLean's reporter asked her if she liked working there, she said that it was comfortable, but it was lonely. She kind of lived with the family that she worked for, but not really, and I'm going to explain what that means. So she had a two-bedroom apartment that was on the third floor of the family home, so she lived with them, but she didn't. It was a self-contained unit that had carpet all throughout to soundproof it as much as possible it was furnished with a television radio reading materials that the family was ready to throw away and so they gave it to her and she had a sewing machine in the corner now they soundproofed it obviously so they couldn't hear what she was doing up there but because it was at the third floor of the family home she wasn't able to have people over or like invite anyone over any male suitors any female suitors whatever her deal was she couldn't really have friends over because they would have to walk through the family home to get there and that just wasn't okay so i can only imagine how much more isolating that would have been after work she was free to go wherever she wanted she was one of the lucky women who had other domestic workers who were her friends but by the time she's done work and like if she were to shower and all of those things would already be after 8 p.m and her friends don't really live nearby she couldn't walk that far to hang out with them, then walk back and be well rested enough to continue her mandatory duties the next day. Or she would have to spend a day's pay in transportation alone, so that just didn't seem worth it. But above all else, she knew that it wasn't safe for her to go out at night, so she primarily stayed inside where she reads or she sews. These are things that she enjoyed, but to do it every day and by yourself just does not seem enjoyable long term. The only day in which she got kind of a slight break was Thursday, in which she would work a half day of work, which is still about six hours, six or seven hours. So this was truly the only day she really got to do what she wanted, when she wanted, whether it be shopping, just walking around, enjoying the company of her friends, or going to a black church to eat, play games, watch TV. But above all else, build up a sense of community and be around folks who looked like you and understood you on a deeper level for the first time in a long time. A practice I can only imagine must have felt like a breath of fresh air. While together, they spoke about their jobs, their workloads, the difference in wages, the attitudes and habits of their employers. They also just genuinely enjoyed each other's company, and I bet you she was just counting down the days each week until Thursday arrived. So once their one-year work contracts were up, they were often left with no place to live, no form of income, and without legal status in Canada. They were brought here, used up, and then abandoned by the very same government who so desperately needed them only a year before. Domestic workers were not permanent at all, and neither was their Canadian status. After their one year was up, if they were lucky enough to be employed for that full year, they were eligible for other work opportunities as well as other education. But the only jobs and education that they were offered all fell under the category of domestic or women's work, such as teaching or nursing. After their one-year work contract was up, they were able to sponsor family members who wanted to come to Canada as well. But the Canadian government didn't really want this to happen. They just put it out there so that it would be something enticing for them to want to come here in the first place because they made it an extremely difficult process. 
Some women were also able to sponsor their fiancés, but they had to marry them within 30 days of their landing in Canada. So 30-day fiancé vibes before TLC ever thought about that show. When I was doing research, this part to me was kind of confusing because the requirement was that they were single, that they were not in a relationship, they weren't married. But if they were granted the ability to bring their fiancés over, it was an extremely difficult process. Oftentimes, the immigration worker would assume that the woman were lying, right? Because they had to be single to get into the program. What's not clicking? Or they found out that the fiancés were black, so they didn't really want them here. They would keep delaying the arrival of the fiancés for as long as they could. And they told the woman that should you remain interested in this matter, this case could be reviewed in six months. What the hell is even that? Many others would be told the same thing and would wait this time frame only to receive a letter saying that their fiancé was not a part of a class of persons admissible to Canada. This is literally the same terminology that was used during the time period that we talked about in the last Black Canadian history episode, the Black Ban on Immigration, like 1910, 1911, 1912. Once their programs were up, many were fired by their employers. I couldn't really find out why, but I would assume that once they were granted official Canadian status of some sort, their employees would have to pay them more or pay them adequately as they now had status in Canada. So they were considered under the Canadian branch. They weren't just temporary. So after they were fired, they faced great stigma regarding their work experience in Canada, very much like the temporary foreign worker program, which we also discussed in the last Black Canadian history episode. Those who were forced to stick with their jobs were continually overworked, underpaid, and treated unfairly simply because nowhere else would hire them. Many refused to stay with these jobs, and so they lied about their arrival, their status in Canada, and their work experience. Now, me personally, I support every single woman who did this. Get that bag, sis, and don't let xenophobia or racism get in your way. She's got a point. She's an icon. She's a legend. And she is the moment. Only after living in Canada for five years were these women eligible for Canadian citizenship. The Department of Citizenship and Immigration didn't care at all about these women before and after they arrived. When complaints started to come forth and women started speaking up about what they had experienced, then the Canadian government stopped giving automatic landed immigrant status, causing the program scheme to end in January of 1968. This program was in place for over a decade, and yet we've never talked about it formally on a large scale. You don't find that suspicious. It makes me wonder how many grandparents or even parents of y'all had one of these workers in your home, and yet they just saw it as normal, so they didn't really talk about their upbringing with these people. Because it wasn't that long ago, like we're talking 1950s, 1960s, like. West Indian women continued and continue to come to Canada as domestic workers using temporary employment visas. So basically, the program is still going on to this day, but the government tweaked it so that they were able to send them back whenever they wanted. Like I mentioned before, we talked about the temporary foreign worker program in the last episode, and the people who come to Canada through this program are granted virtually no protections under the law, but now we're going to talk about how it affects Caribbean women in particular. The implementation of the temporary foreign worker program made things worse for women who came to do their jobs that are considered domestic. Their status and sponsorship is now completely dependent on their employers. Employers are able to exploit them in literally every way they wish because no one's going to check on them, and what's the likelihood that they're going to believe this woman who's here on a temporary work program than the employer in Canada? 
The women now often find themselves working longer hours, they are paid less, and they have harsher working conditions than they did when the scheme first launched. Women who work in Canada through the TFW program, they likely do not want to make any formal complaints or make any complaints at all because they don't want to risk their job or risk their potential status here. These women are routinely subject to economic abuse as well as sexual harassment and varying forms of sexual assault, even rape. Caribbean women still came forward anyways about what they've experienced and they talked about the abuses that they experienced and how the Canadian government condoned literally all of it, but more specifically the racial exploitation. So many came forth that it literally forced the government to fix, quote unquote, fix their policy in November of 1981. The revision to this policy allowed for those doing domestic work on temporary employment visas who have been living in Canada for two years the ability to apply for permanent residency. Now, to me, just between you and me right here right now, I don't see this as a fix at all because their original term of employment is still only a year with the option to extend it. So while it's an improvement, sure, I guess, it doesn't do much to right the historic and current wrongs that have been done and continue to be done to Black Caribbean women coming to Canada on temporary work visas. And that's on a period. In July of 2020, the West Indian domestic scheme was designated National Historic Significance by the Government of Canada. This irritates me on a whole nother level. Something that we're going to notice, and I do have a lot of Black History episodes coming out, obviously in Black History Month, but I've already started doing research for a lot of those cases. So it the government continues to do messed up things to Black communities and Black people and then deem it something of national historic significance as a quick fix for what they did to be like, oh, we're acknowledging it. But they're not really acknowledging it because they don't tell the truth about what they've done. They just brush over it and downplay the harm that they've caused. Well, just as I thought, trash. So we have now come to the part of the podcast where I give my thoughts, my feelings, my opinions about what we just talked about. This is especially irritating to me because when we talk about the feminist moves and the feminist waves and things that have happened in Canada, we never talk about this. We never talk about this. Never talked about the fact that white women specifically were granted the ability to go and work and enter all these new workforces and pave the way, quote unquote, pave the way at the expense of black Caribbean women coming over here and filling up the jobs that they no longer wanted to do because they deemed it beneath them. It was beneath you but it wasn't beneath the Caribbean women to come over here and fill those roles. Disgusting! It's also, so, it just makes me think of The Help. I just think of The Help hearing about this completely and the parallels between that movie and what Abelene experienced and between what the women experienced, specifically the woman that we talked about who shared her experience with McLean's magazine to where she took care of the kids, she cooked, she cleaned, she did everything and yet she wasn't really seen as like a valued member of the family. The house would not have been able to function without her. And yet, I remember when I was reading that article, it was like, okay, well, the dad goes to work and the mom just gets to go gallivanting. So it's not even like she's working or doing anything revolutionary. Not that every woman has to do anything revolutionary, but they didn't need this domestic worker to come in the house. But they had her just because they could afford her. 
and they could afford to pay her a lot higher than they did, but they just didn't really want to. So they got to the point where they were comfortable just demeaning her and belittling her and being like, oh, well, not even top class servants get what you get. To like this sort of entitlement to where it's like, I am responsible for bringing you over here, so I get to pay you whatever I want. And that's very much like how the temporary foreign worker program continues to work. And there were women who came to this program and were able to build a new life for themselves and see it as a good thing. But for me, overall, this program mm -hmm. shows how comfortable the Canadian government was and still is okay with exploiting black labor that is close to them and accessible to them. Like the Caribbean countries are much more acceptable than African countries, for example. So they're not going to exploit the labor from there. They're just going to get it from right there. You know what I mean? A couple flights away, it's cheaper for them. And this is something that they continue to do. So I just think that it's very telling on the pull of white Canadian feminism and white Canadian feminist waves where black women stand on that. And I do think that this program needs to be talked about more formally when discussing the things that white women were able to accomplish off of the backs of black women. And the fact that black women continue to raise these people's kids and keep Canada functioning essentially, because if these women never came over, I can only imagine what this time period would have been like in terms of upkeeping of the home, raising of the kids, even just keeping husbands happy because that was still kind of the whole vibe of this time period. So I just, yeah, this program needs to be talked about a lot more. And I wish the Canadian government would stop deeming things of national historic significance when they're still doing it to this day or do it without fully acknowledging what they did. Like you can't be like, yes, this is of national historic significance because these women came over and they really helped us out because that's not what the program was. Like, if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. And if you don't, then don't acknowledge it and be fake and phony. If you enjoyed this episode learning about Black Canadian history with me, then consider watching the rest of this playlist where you can learn even more about the real Black Canadian history they don't want to teach us. And if you are listening, then make sure to listen to one of the many episodes that I have about Black history. For those of you who are celebrating the holidays, I wish you a happy holiday. And those who this is a hard time for, sending you all my love. And I'm glad that you're spending this time with me. Podcast episodes come out every single Sunday. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope to see you next week.